This is Femmes Like Us. I'm Stevie. And I'm Mariah. And today we're going to share our interview with Anna Shajarat, who is a PhD in British Romanticism out of the University of Washington. Um, I know her from my grad program, and I am happy that she was able to come and chat with us, um, not only about her knowledge of the British literary canon, which you will hear a little bit about, um, but... Mostly, I wanted to talk to her as someone who knows a lot about the concept of erasure. So you're going to hear her discussion of femme erasure as it is tied to her ethnic identity. She is a half Iranian woman who is perhaps white appearing, you might say. And she has a lot of really interesting thoughts to share about what it means to inhabit the world One of the other topics that she really delves into is the sense of gatekeeping for the community and uh, what queer might look like if we expand that definition and we expand this to uh, offer an opportunity for people to be part of the community, whether they are read from the outside, that they belong there or not. Um, And we get into some really interesting uh, pieces of that conversation about what it means for somebody to say are there requirements for entry to this community? Take a listen. Here's our conversation. Uh, we're chatting today with Anna Shajarat, who is a scholar in British Romanticism. So, Anna, would you tell us, first of all, your pronouns, and then a little bit maybe about some of your work, just so we sure. know who we're talking to. Yeah. Uh, so I use she, her pronouns. Um, and so my dissertation, and then... The revision of the dissertation into a book project has focused on gothic literature written by women. Um, so it's sort of a subgenre of the gothic called the female gothic, funnily enough. And so what I look at is the way that women represent history from an 18th century perspective and how the experiences that women go through in the so-called Age of Enlightenment uh, critique the narrative of progress and equality that Enlightenment thinkers like to frame the period as. Um, So creating this fantasy representation of history as a way of looking at and critiquing quote unquote progress of the present. Um, Let's start with how you identify around the word femme. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think of femme as a political identity. As far as low or high femme, I don't really think necessarily in those terms, because I think femme has historically, traditionally been based on a binary, um, that is not helpful. Um, and that we, in the, well, so I identify as queer as well. So just to put that in context. So yeah, um, I like to think about it outside the binary, which I think is happening in a lot of conversations around femme, that it doesn't have to be thought in terms of butch femme or masculine feminine. Um, so so yeah, so I just think about it and inhabit it as a way of being and thinking in the world that focuses on people who are not men <laughs> and privileges their experience and frames the way that we think about things and the way that we critique culture, politics, etc. Um, from a non-male perspective. Do you have a femme icon? I, well, several, but one that comes to mind is Alok Vadmanan, 
uh, who is a trans feminine performance artist. They used to be part of a duo called Dark Matter. Um, and they're based in New York and their fashion sensibility is so wild and out there and definitely has a vintage flair to it, which I appreciate as someone who likes the, the vintage aesthetic. Um, and they, they don't pass, um, as femme or feminine in any way. And so their experiences of living as a femme, um, who doesn't pass is one that is deeply important and deeply stressful and painful, but also beautiful. Um, so I follow them pretty regularly on Facebook. And so getting their experience and expression of what it is like to be in the world as a femme is really important for me and their existence and their art out of their pain and their joy. You could tell us about some of the others if you want. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so I am a big fan of old Hollywood. Um, so, and I don't know if, um, Garbo counts as femme. Yes, Garbo counts. Yes. I think of her as, I think of her as femme. Yeah. Um, and as a queer femme and, um, as a fucking badass. So, um, so, I mean, just not only like stupidly beautiful, um, but as playing with, with gender and masculine and femininity, um, and just like incredibly sexy, uh, oozing sex. And so, yeah, she, she is, I bow down to her. <laughs> cool. Um, so we specifically wanted to talk today around the topic of femme erasure. And I think in a couple of your queer icons, that concept is sort of, undergirding your mm. discussion of why you're interested in them. What was the performance artist's name again? Alok Vadmanon. Alok Vadmanon. Okay, so in uh, Manon's work, right, you're talking about their femme identity often being erased. And I think in our historical memory of Garbo, right, mm. your question of does Garbo yeah. count as a femme, yeah. even in some ways, um, speaks to the way that women in old Hollywood particularly, like, were highly feminized, but maybe not politically fat. Mm, mm -hmm. So, um, could you define femme erasure for us? How <laughs> would you define it? <laughs> um, well, so this is, I mean, my personal experience of femme erasure, which for me is always tied to my Middle Eastern identity. Um, and so... I mean, I think one of the questions is sort of like what the difference between erasure and passing is. So, um, so I'm half Iranian, um, but I pass as white. Um, if you were to see me, you would not register that I was a Middle Eastern person. If you were to see me, you would not register probably that I'm a queer person um, or a queer femme even necessarily, depending on the day. So, yeah. So, I mean, uh, for me, I can't talk about femme erasure without talking about my ethnicity being erased as well. Um, and I go back and forth sometimes between like, do I identify as a person of color? Do I identify as like an ethnic minority? Whatever, just because Middle Eastern identity is tricky and that way it doesn't fall into, you know, set racial categories. Um, but that's like them too. So for me, the erasure of my identity as both a queer femme and a Middle Eastern Iranian particularly person sort of translates as 
me inhabiting the world and people registering me in ways that are not accurate. Um, and obviously with erasure in, in queer and then in like ethnic categories too, like privilege becomes a big part of the conversation. So I am privileged in that in many ways. Um, so like I have spent some time in the Midwest and, um, I don't have to deal with the experiences that people who do not pass quote unquote, (laughs) um, have to deal with. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the difference between being read as not queer by a queer person Mm -hmm. and being read as not queer by a straight person. And Mm -hmm. maybe with the analogous uh, experience of being read as white by a white person and read as white by a Middle Eastern person. Mm -hmm. Are those different for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it feels like a sense of loss for a queer person or a Middle Eastern person to read me as white and or straight. Um, I care less about straight people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think, you know, like so much of having identities that are at the margins are about um, community and building bonds between one another. And so not sort of being able to see each other and to be like, oh, you're one of us or me, you know, um, that feels like a loss and and painful. Um, and I don't, I mean, yeah, I mean, I sort of made a joke about like not caring what straight people think, which is partly true. <laughs> um, because they're, yeah, again, like I don't necessarily have that like automatic community or bond with them that I do with a queer person or with a Middle Eastern person. Um, and I think people would probably push back against the my statement that there's an automatic bond between people who have the same identity, but I I feel that way. Benedict Anderson would back you up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Imagine community. Yes. Yes, exactly. It all comes back to Benedict oh. fucking Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> But that's the concept that we're alluding to is this concept of imagined community where uh, this is part of how Anderson reads nation building, where essentially all of the people uh, in a nation might never know each other. In fact, will never know each other. Right. But there is a sense uh, that their nationalism ties them together. And so this applies to other types of communities, Mm -hmm. too. I, when I teach this, I like to make it analogous to fandom, where, like, the minute mm. you know somebody likes the X-Files, you're like, great, we're best friends, right, which, right. true story, has happened to me. <laughs> um, and so this this may play out sometimes in, like, women's spaces or mm-hmm. queer spaces, mm-hmm. right, that idea of an automatic bond, although I think Anna's right to trouble that mm-hmm. notion, mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of criticism has kind of troubled that notion recently. Definitely. But... but If we're thinking about this sense of loss um, and not having that connection, Mm -hmm. right, Um, from the perspective maybe of being in community, why do you think this happens? Why is it so easy to push people out um, based on maybe visual signifiers Mm -hmm. or or other things? Yeah. Um, I mean, so I think many different answers. One, which is the simplest, I think, is um, that, you know, in American culture, we privilege masculinity. Um, so anything that is perceived as not not man, not male, not masculine is lessened in some way or not prioritized or not seen or not seen as important. Um, and that gets replicated in the queer community, too, in some ways. 
Um, I think there are beginning to be conversations again, with, like with the opening up of feminists around opening up the queer community to anyone who wants to identify as queer, as opposed to closing it into making it an exclusive category. Um, because we all have anxiety around our identities and um, have the, you know, sort of like imposter syndrome um, or that or a sense of being like not queer enough or not queer in the right way. And that, you know, sort of excluding anyone from the queer community is just replicating that sense that there is a right way to be queer or there is a right way to be femme. Part of what we talked about is a little bit of the history of like where this term comes from. And so uh-huh. it was just kind of like there's a there was a utility before mm-hmm. people could really be out a lot. You mm-hmm. needed to be identified in some way with mm-hmm. other queer people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's some utility in having queer coded like ways of yeah, dressing or right, being. Right, right. Um and so this is this question about what you're saying that as the queer community or like identity opens up a little bit mm-hmm. more is there some way that we can still identify each other without uh-huh. it necessarily being read? Or is that even relevant anymore? I don't know. I think one answer could be no, that it's not relevant anymore and that we shouldn't have like sig- particular signifiers um, for a particular identity and that all that matters is your identifying your identity and that is enough and that counts. And you may have talked about this in your other podcast. Like, there's um, conversation around like straight people identifying as femme. Um, so I think historically that would have been only seen as a problem, and I think it's not necessarily. I mean, or it's becoming less of a problem now. And I certainly have had pushback against that, where it feels like there's sort of like an encroaching upon queer identity, um, or that's like ours as a queer community that's not yours as a straight community or i mean whatever (laughs) non-queer people (laughs) um but again i think just i think that goes back to like stopping the policing and the the um boundary set or not boundary setting but whatever just making it open for whoever for whoever so i don't know where i fall Ultimately, I think I would like to, um, you know, have anyone be able to claim femme or queer who who wants to. Um, at the same time, it does signify a particular set of experiences and um, a history that is just not shared by some people. Mm-hmm. I wonder sometimes if in this question of saying who can identify as queer and um, particularly the note about like, oh, straight women maybe taking up femme as mm-hmm. kind of an identity. You know, in some of our other conversations, we've been like, well, I mean, how do you know, right? Like who is straight? And I wonder mm-hmm. if, yes, it does come with that particular set of experiences. Mm-hmm. But then you also think like, well, does someone um, from like a rural part of the country mm-hmm. who maybe has had limited experience with queer community um, discovers this like late in life mm-hmm. or, and, and, you know, I've known a lot of like women here, right. Who are not necessarily from places that are outside of like queer culture, but maybe just didn't realize or mm-hmm. didn't allow themselves to realize. And so, um, that I think gets back to your point about that kind of policing. Like mm-hmm. it feels a little wrong to yeah. be like, look, just because you've been in a straight seeming marriage for a long mm-hmm. time doesn't feel right for us to tell you mm-hmm. that you aren't part of this community. Right. And yet, you know, 
that's part of this question of erasure. Mm-hmm. That's the back end of imagined communities, right? Is that like people go, I am this mm-hmm. and you are not. Yeah, Your yeah. community is over there. Right. Um, so it's useful, but also um, a clear way to show us how things don't overlap. Right. Necessarily. Well, and that's how, I mean, that kind of policing attitude too is what, what has made fem erasure a thing. So mm-hmm. it's like, right, like if you're, you're not masculine enough, you don't count. Yeah. as being queer or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, in many ways, it just, it doesn't seem helpful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that it's perpetuating, like, the culture of exclusion and, you know, whatever that queer community is trying to fight against. Right. Yeah, and that's based primarily on a binary, right, right. So we're talking about. So this, there's a number of other types of identities that don't get the same um, amount of privilege in that sense of visibility, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, and we're moving, hopefully moving a little bit more away from that, depending on. Do you think that not being read as queer in queer communities is the same thing as passing for straight? So some of your conversation about your um, ethnic identity mm-hmm. also uh, hits on this question. So if you want to talk about that from one or more perspectives, <laughs> we welcome you to do so. Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, I actually sort of have a question for you. you. Yeah. Um, I I sort of think of erasure and passing as interchangeable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would be curious to hear, like, what for you might be some distinctions between mm-hmm. the two. Mm-hmm. Well, um, one of the things for me, I think about... Um, what your goals or intentions are. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, erasure is often, I want to be read as queer and I'm not. Mm-hmm. And passing is, I'm trying not to be read as queer. Oh, uh-huh. You know, that it's it's right, sort right. of a, like, maybe leaning into that privilege mm-hmm. side of mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Um, or or hiding, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And, and, I, and I think that's maybe, so maybe it's a difference of around, like, what my intention is versus what other people are mm-hmm. reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... Th- think I would agree with that, that they serve ultimately the same function, mm-hmm. right? Like on a functional level mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is the same. Tool. Right, right, right. But that passing is something a person might have, but not always mm-hmm. choice in doing. Right. Like passing can be strategic. You know, I'm thinking mm-hmm. of, um, yes. uh, to go way back here, right? I'm thinking about like Eve Sedgwick and, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the bit that she says in Epistemology of the Closet about making queer identity analogous to Jewish identity, where mm-hmm. she talks about Queen Esther, right? Mm-hmm. And Esther's choice to come out mm-hmm. to her Gentile husband mm-hmm. um, as uh, she could have passed, right? right? And passing for her would have been survival, but she chooses mm-hmm. to do this, mm-hmm. right? So there's a choice in not passing. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas eraser, erasure seems like, I just can't say it. <laughs> <laughs> Like that mm-hmm. passing, you can negotiate. It seems a little bit more deliberate um, or potentially deliberate. Yeah. But I see them, they can perform that same function, mm-hmm. you know. So that would be my distinction. Yeah. You see them as maybe the same, but not just at the functional level. Can you maybe speak a little bit more about that? Um. Let's see. Well, I think I was thinking about them as, as the same at the functional level, but I see the difference between sort of like an agency around like passing as opposed to a sort of more like passive experience of this is getting put upon me. I am uh-huh. being erased. Yeah. Um, and so I think, again, like, either one can't be talked about without privilege Yeah. Um, being part of the conversation, which is, you know, like, it's 
tricky. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That it can be hard and painful to not be able to pass and it can be hard and painful to pass um, as well. I don't know that I think, I mean, one of the things that you both were talking about was sort of like choice or agency again. Mm -hmm. And for me, it feels like it's not a choice. Mm -hmm. Like I can't help but pass. (laughs) Um, And as far as erasure goes, I mean, I think a similar thing where I can't control how people see me or how they don't see me. And I can use words to describe my identity. And I always make a point to come out in some way, you know, in any conversation I have coming out both as queer and as Iranian. Um, And that's really all I can do is just say, this is who I am. And that even though it doesn't get read in my body. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting of this, this question that you posed at the very beginning of, Mm -hmm. is femme about an aesthetic thing? Mm -hmm. Is it about a political identity? Mm -hmm. Is it about the way of being? Mm -hmm. Um, And the difference between how other people might see you versus what you are projecting, and what you feel. Mm -hmm. Um, And just sort of like, what, whether there, whether that needs to change, or whether that's just the way that humans yeah. are. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great... Yeah, like, is that problematic or yeah. is that just a thing? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think probably both, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it is a thing and um, it's probably not great. I mean, <laughs> but I don't I don't really know what the alternative... Well, I mean, right. I don't know. Is there an alternative? I don't know either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We all just like shrugged and looked yeah. at each other. No, I don't, I don't think know. we can think of one. <laughs> well, that's the trouble, right? It's really hard to think outside of the systems with which we are familiar. Let me ask you this, like from the perspective of your work as a scholar mm-hmm. of like British women's history, like mm-hmm. you're talking about the way they imagine uh, the public, right? And imagine, imagine history. Do you mm-hmm. have any thoughts on how like this kind of connection in mm-hmm. queer culture today or femme erasure might like map onto the past yeah. as well? My key word for my, for my work is fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I bring in psychoanalytic framework, um, is through the psychoanalytic conception of fantasy um, and that's how the word that I use to describe how these women writers imagine the past as and that imagination of the past as a fantasy um, is, again, like mirroring the fu- the present, I should say. Um, and in that mirroring, showing the reality <laughs> that the fantasy covers over, which is that 18th century life for for women um was not an age of progress. And um, as I work more on the project, uh, race is becoming more part of that work and getting interested in how white British women do an awesome job of critiquing their conditions in the present, but use people of color and enslaved people um, as they sort of, they they replicate what they are critiquing and then put that map that onto enslaved people and people of color. Um, So at the same time that they are um, radically critiquing the present, they're also 
um, replicating that in, in the way that they imagine, particularly the colonies in the Caribbean. So, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like there's a little <laughs> bit of an analog there, right? This notion of being bound to the set of conditions in which you live and that being a limiting factor on how how far that imagination mm-hmm. can go. So mm-hmm. even if you can imagine it for yourself, then you're like, oh, but also... Yeah, right. These other people, though, not for yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Right? For me, but not for them. Totally. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I think the the interest in race, and particularly in the role of white, mem- wh- white women playing a very specific part in marginalizing people of color, um, has for sure come out of my politics and yeah. my femme identity um and you know my ethnic identity too where i'm straddling that line between like white and not white um so it's just really interesting and i think important to trace i mean part of what i want to do in the project is to trace the origins of how white women become this very specific category of violence <laughs> um really great um do you have any final thoughts about feminists that you would like to impart <laughs> to our listeners? Um, I, yeah, I mean, I think like having this conversation with you both is great in many ways. And I think one thing that I'm taking away from the conversation is this um, idea of opening up community and queerness and feminists. And um, so sort of along that vein to say that femme is whatever you want it to be. It is not just, you know, like whatever the prescribed, like, super feminine as a, in opposition to butch like and obviously that's true but um just that it's a fun and playful identity and category and that it is malleable and empowering that's great thank you so much for chatting with us today about your work and other things related to your identity as a femme and your ethnic identity and how that intersects i'm really glad that we got to have such a complex conversation. Wow, we really had a moment about Benedict Anderson we there. We really didn't had we? a moment about Benedict Anderson. <laughs> Clearly, he holds a place in all of our hearts. Did you read? Uh, was that part of your anthro? Oh yeah, uh, I was an anthropology okay. major in college, and it stuck for some reason. Benedict Anderson is one of the things that I remember very well. Mm, that's interesting. Um, we bring him up in lit programs because he's got that whole jam about like the newspaper and simultaneity. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I think I read about. I think I read him in a class about the immigrant experience and imagined communities oh, of nationalism. Totally. I mean, yeah, that that's absolutely right. absolutely makes sense. Um, so I think that's really interesting though, like if you're going to theorize what it means to form a community and how we imagine community, which is a lot of what this inquiry about being a femme is about, because there's that, right? There's that little subset of your community as femme identified person and other femme identified people within the sort of larger imagined community that is the queer community. And even though those borders are purely imaginary, that kind of gatekeeping still happens, as Anna brings up. Um, and that's something for, I think, all of us to be a little bit more aware of as we move in our day-to-day lives. I was really struck by her use of the word loss mm-hmm. and the sense of um, loss of that entrance into the community and that there is a real toll to this gatekeeping. It's not just, oh, I don't get read as what I am, but I am actually not given access to the community that sometimes I desperately need. Mm -hmm. 
I'll say as a as a bi woman who's been uh, a covert bisexual operative for many years <laughs> in a monogamous relationship with a male person, um, that is certainly something that I feel, but I also think I enforce it myself, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I asked you even when you asked me to do this podcast, I was like, so, but you know I'm bi, right? Like, <laughs> you've met my husband. Um, and it feels, you know, for me, like as a person who gets to spend a lot of time, um, I guess, seeming like a straight person to everybody else, that I feel I shouldn't integrate into queer community yeah. as much, even though, as we keep joking, right, all my friends are gay. Right? <laughs> well, but it's so, it's this internalized boundary as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the most insidious things about these kinds of gatekeeping is that they do get internalized. And we see this, uh, we see this uh, in an, in analogy analogous places in all kinds of identity groups. Um, but it is really interesting. I went into this podcast feeling like I don't feel like I belong in queer community very often. And my takeaway from doing all these interviews is none of us feel like we're queer enough. But that's kind of nuts, right? That all of us are sitting here feeling very tied to our queer identity and yet having internalized the sense that we're not enough for it. Mm-hmm. And that I... I I'm noticing that that is such a theme and that something might be able to change should we all have these conversations more often. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, our action item for you for this episode is to think about a place in your life where maybe you've been misidentified as something that you are not. And truthfully, that could be as simple or as stupid as something like, oh, someone thought I was the checker when really I'm the manager of this store, right? Like something as as fairly innocuous as that, but it might be larger. Um, And we want to challenge you or invite you to think about what you could do to change it. We actually don't need you to tweet at us unless you want to. (laughs) We'll read it if you want to. Yeah. This is really about you and your life and thinking about what might ease your way in the world by identifying yourself correctly for who you are and not how people have read you. Mm-hmm. And um, we know that some of that might be really painful for people. So that's why we're not asking you to share it in public. And of course, you always have the choice to tweet at us or not. So if you want to, I'm at Stevie Costa. And I'm at Trick Switch. And we will happily respond if you decide to share your journeys with us. And you can, of course, hashtag that Fems in Action. Thanks for listening. Our theme music is Arcade Montage by Lee Rosefear, which you can find on freemusicarchive.org.